1: He is the research professor in New Testament at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, his degrees include uh, a bachelor's in science from McGill University in Montreal, a master's of divinity uh, from Central Baptist Seminary, which is in Canada, I believe, and uh, a PhD from Cambridge University in England. Dr. Carson is... Um, <coughs> A widely respected and uh, incredibly prolific author. He's written or edited over 40 books, some of which are on my back table if you want to check them out afterwards. Um, I could go on about his professional credentials, but I would rather tell you a story because I had the privilege of having Dr. Carson as my professor when I was studying at Trinity. And uh, it was always something that I looked forward to because Dr. Carson would pull together the best scholarship, the discussions that were going on at the highest levels of academia, um, among seminaries and graduate schools across the country, he would interact at that level and yet bring the, the power and the truth of scripture home in great ways. Um, friends and I, who were sitting in the New Testament class the day that he taught on um, John 11 and 12, and was talking about the cross talking about the cross as Christ dying as a substitute for us. When uh, Caiaphas says, you know, it's good that a man, you know, one man should die for many. And he's talking about the sake of Israel. But of course, God meant that to mean that Christ was going to die uh, for uh, the elect, for sinners like us. Um, and then he... He, he went beyond that and he talked about the cross being not only the atonement where God gained us our salvation, but also the model for our lives. The cross is a picture of a sacrificial life, of dying to self and dying to our self-interest. Um, and he told a story about a missionary who had served his whole life and come back from the mission field and within six months had run off with uh, the church secretary. And he, And he asked us at the end of that, as he told the story and he reflected on it, he he said, I was talking to my pastor, and I said, why do you think this happened? He said, I'm not sure that man ever made a sacrificial decision for the gospel. And he posed the question to us, have we ever made that, have we ever made a sacrificial decision for the sake of the gospel? Have we ever done something that's cost us something very dear for the sake of following Christ? We were home that day from New Testament class and spent time praying together, asking God that that would be true of us. That's the kind of man Dr. Carson is. Uh, his wife, Joy, is at home in Chicago. He has two children, one of whom is uh, his daughter, Tiffany, is a student here at Ithaca College. Um, but I'm very excited. He's going to come tonight and open John 1 and look at Jesus, the Word of God, to us. So please welcome with me Dr. Dia Carson.
0: It's my privilege to be with you. I hope for this weekend that uh, it will open up some windows for you as to who Jesus is, and as a result, you will want all the more to 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 understand Him, to know Him, to worship Him, to love Him, to obey Him. I'm going to begin simply by reading the text. Um, you should have it in front of you. John one 1:1-18. Um, Perhaps you can look over the shoulder of someone else if uh, you don't have it, or listen closely. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. <clears throat> strange way to begin a book, this, isn't it? We, um, we're familiar with these sorts of lines if we've been brought up in the church. But, no, you have to admit this is a strange way to begin a book. In the beginning was the Word. And even um, after you've read on a bit, and you've discovered that Jesus is the Word, you still ask yourself, why this particular title? Why, why doesn't the writer assign something to him that is a little more familiar? In the beginning was the Messiah. In the beginning was the Son of God. In the beginning was the great rabbi. In the beginning was the Son of Man, one of the titles that crops up in the book all the time. Why this one? In fact, the word, rendered word, in the ancient world tended to function in two different ways. It's the word logos, from which we get the word logos. And it could refer to the inner meaning of something, the science of something, the reason. A bill shows up in all of our... Logy words. Uh, psychology is the logy, the logos, the word, the science of the okay, of the soul, of, of the mind. Theology is the logy, the science of theos, of God. It's, it's the God science. Geology is the logy, the science, the structure of thought, of, of the land, gay. But the more common usage in our literature does not have to do with the inner thought of something, but with the outward expression of it. Then it has more to do with message. Thus, for example, Paul can write, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who believe. He's not saying the word cross, C-R-O-S-S, is is foolishness. Everybody says cross, and, and everybody's supposed to laugh. He he simply means that the message of the cross is foolishness. A little later on in John's Gospel, Jesus says, If you remain in my word, then you will be my disciples. What he means, of course, is if you remain in my message. And that's what's going on here. Render it this way In the beginning was the message, and the message was with God. And the message was God. In fact, it's not going too much beyond paraphrase to put it, in the beginning God expressed himself, and that self-expression was with God, and that self-expression was God. That's the domain of thought in which this first verse lives. Still, we must ask why John chose this title. It's not a title that he develops outside of the first 18 verses, outside of the prologue. Perhaps the most dominant title in the rest of the book is Son of God, and it would have made perfectly good sense in, in terms of John's theology to say, in the beginning was the Son of God, and the Son of God was with God, and the Son of God was God. In fact, he gets to the end of his book, and he, he says overtly that I have written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God. So why does not he use it at the beginning? I suspect that the reason he doesn't is because if he had used it, it would have elevated that title to the place where it controls the rest of the book in a literary way. That is to say, that would mean that this title was the lens through which you had to read the entire book. Instead, he deals with a lot of the titles of Jesus in the book, and now he wants, as he puts together his introduction, his prologue, he wants one that summarizes the whole, he wants one that puts them all together. One can imagine him thinking through all that he knows of the Bible and Scripture and of Jesus, looking for a title that will summarize all of what he wants to say. Perhaps he recalls that in the Old Testament, we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens and earth were made. Now, of course, he knows that when that's said in the Old Testament, it's it's not not a reference to Jesus. It means that God spoke. And because he has absolute power, he can bring things into existence by his own determined will. He but speaks. Nevertheless, the scriptures do say, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, Psalm 33. And then you might remember, the word of the Lord came to me. Again and again, the prophets speak in this line. Or Isaiah 9, the Lord has sent a word, that is a message against Jacob. And in that case, the word is connected not with creation, but with revelation. Well, sometimes the word, word, is connected with power, transformation, salvation, deliverance. For example, my word, God says, will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. Or again, in Psalm 107, God sent forth his word and healed them. And so he thinks, yes, that is an appropriate expression to use of Jesus himself. That is, the one who is God's own agent in creation, in revelation, in self-disclosure, in transformation. I will call him the word of God. Nor is John the only one to think in those terms. Do you recall how the epistle of the Hebrews begins? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, there's that word, he spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken unto us, and then the original has simply, in son. That is, the son is not presented as parallel to the prophets, but the actual medium himself. It's as if God has spoken in the past by words, now he has given us the Son revelation. It's as if God's last word, as it were, is Jesus himself. Now, John goes on to say two things which on first reading sound mutually contradictory. That's not normally the way you begin a book either. John doesn't hesitate. In the beginning was the word, he says, later he'll identify him with Jesus, And then he says, the word was with God, God's own fellow. And the word was God, God's own self. From such texts as these are the rudiments of what came to be called the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it would take us too far afield to explore how you move there, but nevertheless, it is precisely this sort of tension language which which finally drives the creation of the doctrine of the Trinity. That is, this Word, this this unique Son, is God's own fellow in the beginning. Whatever beginning you think of, he already was with God. In the beginning was the Word. Indeed, John is not afraid to say, and the Word was God. One commentator writes, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. It's very important to see that right away when you begin to approach a a, a gospel like the gospel of John. Um, You you simply cannot read John and come away with sweet piffle uh, to the effect that Jesus was a wonderfully nice man. Just a wonderfully nice man. He immediately either speaks himself or others speak of him such fantastic things that either you have to dismiss them as utter rubbish, or worth another look. He demands either repentance, allegiance, worship, or dismissal. But never, ever should we condescend to treat him as if he were sweet niceness. Now then, what does John tell us about this word? He tells us four things. First, the word creates us. If you're following in the text that I gave you, verse 2 repeats the middle clause of verse 1 in order to prepare the way for verse 3. The middle clause of verse 1 is the word was with God. That's picked up in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning, to prepare the way for verse 3. Through him all things were made. That is, because he was actually with God in the beginning, he could serve as God's own agent in creation. And then, verse 3 puts things both positively and negatively, to allow nothing to escape. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Nor is this the only place in the New Testament where such claims are advanced. For example, in Colossians 1, verses 15 and following, written within about um, 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul insists that all things were made by him and for him. And indeed, in the passage that I just read from Hebrews, something similar is said. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Now, the question is, why does John say this? You you see, many of the things in John's prologue anticipate themes, that show up in the rest of the book. We'll come across two or three of them in due course. It's an introduction. And so as a result, this introduction anticipates major themes that crop up a little later in the book. But nowhere in the book, outside the prologue, does this theme get developed. Nowhere. What's John's point, then, in introducing it here? Well, in part, this is a setup for an argument that he develops In the prologue itself, we'll see it in a moment, verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. You see, it is the doctrine of creation that grounds human responsibility. The first responsibility of all created, moral, sentient beings is to own their dependence. That's why the first temptation is presented as overthrowing that dependence and wanting to be like God. In the beginning there is God. In the beginning there are the human beings who are in his likeness and who recognize their principal dependence upon him And are devoted to him in their acknowledgement of their dependent existence. That is part of what it means to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. But as soon as we become the center of the universe, then God is de-godded. God is relativized. I was speaking in Montreal a few months ago, and this was a bilingual conference as it it happened, and and so uh, because I was brought up there, half of my speaking was in English and half was in French, but they had translators giving simultaneous translation going the opposite way. But at this particular point, I was speaking in English, and uh, when you're speaking and you know you're going to be translated, you, 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 you avoid certain things. You avoid puns. You lose puns in translation. You avoid poetry. Um, you avoid things that are just tied to one culture, not the other culture, and, and so forth. But in my um, enthusiastic flow, I dropped him this expression, the de-godding of God. And I thought, oh good grief, back of my mind it's playing, what is the poor translator going to do with that one? So afterwards, I asked him, what did you do with it? He said, I said, la dethronisation de Dieu, the dethroning of God. And then I had one of my graduate students with me, and he said, oh, I can do better than that. He said, la choseification de Dieu. The thingifying of God.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the, the turning of God into a thing. Do, 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 do you see? The de of God. La choseification de Dieu. I just wish I'd thought of that one. It's so good. Do, 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 do. And, 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 and that is exactly what happens once God becomes our competitor. Instead of our maker, I- instead of, of our sovereign, then he becomes our competitor. If I am at the center of the universe, then God, if he, she, or it exists, jolly well better serve me, or quite frankly, I'll find other gods. Thank you. And that is the beginning of all idolatry. At, at, at base, thus, in Scripture... It is creation that establishes the grounds of our responsibility. Have you ever tried to share your faith? To be rebuffed in these sorts of terms? You, you, um, you talk about what Jesus means to you and uh, how he died on the cross for your sins, or whatever categories you are most comfortable with, and, and then eventually the person says to you, Look, look, Elaine, I'm really happy if this Jesus business is a, is to a you. You know, we all have to find our own way. And for, for, for you, it's Jesus, and I'm happy for you, really, I am. And for me, it's crystals. It, it it gets the rhythm of my life back together again. We we have to find our own spirituality. But I really don't like it when you keep shoving Jesus down my throat. Now back off, you know. Unless I'm not sure I want your friendship. Now what do you say? Well, of course, maybe you do need to back off a little bit and take the part of wisdom and be gentle and loving and faithful. There's no there's no merit in being rude. But sooner or later, if you really do care for this person, don't you have to say something like this? You know, finally, I, I, I really don't mean to be rude, and I don't really care if you like crystals. Fine. But... Uh, I can't back off. I mean, not completely. Because the the one I worship made you, and you owe him. And the fact you don't recognize that is already an embarrassingly large sign of the enormous danger in which you find yourself. You see, Christianity does not finally present itself as one of the options. It it presents itself as what comes along to meet our need after we've shaken our puny fists in the face of the God who made us. And John, therefore, goes back to basics. He reminds us of creation. All things were made by him. That includes you and me. That grounds our responsibility. It's it's what's going to make this funny thing called sin his, another ten verses on. So, the Word then creates us. Second, the Word gives us light and life, verses four to nine. Begin with four and five. In him was life. And that light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, some versions have. Or overpowered it, other versions have. What does this mean? Some books you only read once. In fact, once feels a bit too many times for some books, I know that. Or perhaps, you know, you're, you're on a research project and you take U.S. Airways out of here to... Uh, Philadelphia or someplace where you can pick up a transcontinental flight. You're going to LA to use some libraries there. You've got four boring hours ahead of you. Sitting in a squashed seat and eating plastic food. So you go into the airport bookstall and you pick up a Who It. And by the time you arrive in LA, you've discovered Who Done It. So you leave the book in the seat pocket of the seat in front of you, because this is not one, quite frankly, you're going to add to your library. It, it's not a bad book, but it was actually merely a time killer. Uh, you weren't in business class, so you couldn't plug in your computer. And besides, you, you didn't want to work on your computer the whole time in any case. You read a Who It. This is not a book that you will read again. Or if you do read it again, it's because two years from now you're on the same flight and you pick up the same book and you forgot that you read it. So it was not one of those things that had enormous intellectual shaping power on the site. But there are other books where you read them, and then you reread them, and you reread them. And these are not necessarily textbooks or reference works. They may be really good novels, even whodunits, occasionally. One of the better volumes of P.D. James, for example. You you read it through, and then... um, you, you, you used to live in that part of the world. You spent some of your years in Britain, perhaps, and she's got the intonations and the speech and the descriptions of the countryside exactly right. So you read it through very fast to find out who done it. But then you go back and you reread it and let the uh, vocabulary and the style soak into you. You, you, you pick up some of the characterization and, and you see all the lovely places. This is a book where you don't put it in the seat pocket in front of you. You, you keep it. And you discover all kinds of things on your second time through or your third time through that you didn't see the first time. When Lord of the Rings came out, the film version, my son was chomping at the bit for months in advance. He had already read the trilogy uh, four times, five times, I don't know. And then the Silmarillion and anything else he could get his grubby hands on. And, and when it came out, you see, then he was quite prepared to discuss in
1: considerable detail
0: afterwards how the film had changed or not changed anything and whether it was good or bad or whatever. And this was because he had read it enough times that, 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 that he had seen new things, he had absorbed new things. Then he's a bit of a mimic on top of that. So then now he's seen it on the film and he goes around with these utterances from Frodo or, or whatever that, uh, <clears throat> that, that, that uh, you, you, you have to know him and Frodo and the film to appreciate now, the question is this. Did John write his book to be a throwaway? There's a good reason for writing books as a throwaway, a once-off introduction. Or did he write the book and purposely, intellectually, layer it so that certain things you would see only after you have reread it a few times? I think that there is ample evidence in the book that John Intentionally wrote it to have you reread it and reread it and peel off layers. And the first evidence of that is in these two verses. Imagine, if you can, that you don't know much about Christianity. You've met some Christians. You're living in the first century. You probably have a Jewish background or been exposed to it. You know something of the Old Testament storyline, and um, you've met some Christians, but you don't really know much about Christianity. And then somebody gives you this book to read, and you open it up and. In the beginning, well, I, I know that phrase. That, that, that's that's found in the first book of my Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's familiar turf. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Strange, but largely comprehensible. It's not yet identified with anyone, but it's been given to you by a Christian. You know where this is going. The answer is Jesus, isn't it? It all was Jesus. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, well, yes, if he was the creator, the life was in him, and he made things, that life was the the light of men, well, yes, the one who gave us life also gave us our whole orientation. Isn't that what Genesis says right at the beginning? The very first word of God in Genesis is, Let there be light. And there was light. The light shines in the darkness. Well, yes, before him there was nothing. When God said, Let there be light, there was light. The light shined in the darkness. And the darkness has not... This verb means literally to seize upon. The closest English analogy is to master. A wrestler can master his opponent, in which case he overpowers him. But you can also master microbiology, in which case you learn it and understand it. And and, and thus the verb can be rendered to overpower or to understand. Now, if you've understood these two verses this way, then you will read, the light shines in the darkness. Yes, yes, when he was busy creating things. And the darkness has not overpowered it. That is, he could not stop this creator from creating the light in the first place. Isn't that the way you would read it? I don't see how else you could read it after you've read the first three verses. It, it it follows on. But then you read a little further. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He just suddenly appears in the text. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. What, the light of creation? John wasn't there at creation. He himself was not the light. Well, I guess not. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. What does this mean? And then you read in chapter 3. This is the verdict. Chapter 3, verse 19. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now light, you see, has a moral overtone. And darkness is not simply the darkness of nothingness before anything was created. Now darkness has has an overtone of wickedness, of, of, of evil, of reprehensibility, of decay. And and life now has notions of, of purity, of truth. And in fact, as you read on, life and light are connected again and again with eternal life. Not just with the life of, of the created order, but with eternal life itself. And you, you read on, you get to chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So now you read through the whole gospel, and you, you spot all these, these discussions of life and light, and now you go back and you read verses 4 and 5 again, like a P.D. James novel. You see where the plot line goes, now get another layer. In him was life. Ah, yes, but the whole book's been talking about eternal life. That life was the light of men. The whole moral ordering, which gives us conscience and revelation and truth and honor and integrity, The light shines in the darkness, that is, in the darkness of a world that is now seen as corrupt and rebellious, anti-truth, suspicious. But the darkness has not mastered it, has not understood it. The light comes and the darkness doesn't even understand it. It's another world, as it were, It's, it's another domain. And it is in that context, then, that you have verses 6 to 9, this first introduction of Jesus to the stage of history, with John the Baptist pointing him out. He himself was not the light, but he came as a kind of forerunner, an announcer of the light, so that all would believe through him. Now, I want to say something, then, about history. Supposing you could prove, I don't know how, But supposing you could prove somehow that Gautama the Buddha never lived, would you overthrow Buddhism? No, of course not. Because Buddhism is a set of philosophical structures that are independent of the claims of any one individual. Buddhism will stand or fall on its own internal coherence, on the results it has in people's lives, but it is not making essential historical claims, which, if they were overthrown, would destroy Buddhism. Supposing you could prove that Krishna never lived, one of the gods of the Hindu pantheon, would this jeopardize Hinduism? No, of course not. In Hinduism, there is universal, deep truth of a quasi-pantheistic variety, which emerges in different sorts of gods—millions and millions and millions of them—and if somehow I don't, I can't imagine how, but if somehow you could debunk Krishna, well, there's always Shiva, and millions and millions of others. Do you see? Moreover, if you asked a well-informed mullah, could God have given? His revelation through someone other than Muhammad, the Muslim might first take offense, and then you you would have to explain what you mean. No, I'm not questioning whether or not he did. That, that's for you and your people to sort out. I'm, I'm not, that's not my issue. The question I'd like to raise is: Can you imagine that God, in His sovereignty, might have given His revelation through someone other? than Muhammad. And then, once your question is well understood, the Mullah is likely to respond, well of course. Muhammad himself is not the revelation. We believe that he gave the final revelation. He was God's mouthpiece in the revelation. But the revelation is not Muhammad. In that sense, Muhammad is independent, you see, of the revelation. But if you asked a Christian, could you imagine that the revelation of the gospel could have come through someone else? The question is finally incoherent. Because the revelation in the Christian structure of things is Jesus. If you could prove that Jesus never existed, you have utterly destroyed Christianity. In fact, if you could prove that Jesus never rose from the dead, Paul understood that in the first century. He said, if Christ be not risen, he says, then all kinds of things that flow from this. First, he says, the apostles and the 500 witnesses and so on, who all said that they saw him, they're all liars, so you can't trust them anyway. And then he says, you are still in your sins and and your faith is worthless. Worse, he says, You are holding on to a hope that is not well grounded. Paul does not have any truck whatsoever with a merely psychologically beneficial religion. He wants it to be a true religion. Do you see? So that if somehow this God who has disclosed himself in space-time history now can be shown not to have disclosed himself in space-time history, then you have discounted Christianity. Now that's part of what's going on here. This word, God's own agent in creation, now is said to have been touched and seen and witnessed to by John the Baptist. The same theme recurs in in verse 15. That's one of the reasons why all of the New Testament writers are really keen on this witness theme. You you cannot prove who Jesus is the way you can prove a mathematical formula in a well-defined, let's say, base 10 system. In a base 10 system, uh, defining the integers appropriately, 2 plus 2 is 4. But on the other hand, uh, with historical claims,
1: you cannot proceed on
0: that basis. You proceed on the basis of witness. Because the claim of Scripture is that God has disclosed himself in space-time history to real people, in real languages, to real men and women, in real historical situations, not to universal humans, but to men and women, to people speaking Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And in particular, particular, he's disclosed himself in the fullness of time in one word made flesh. Man, Jesus. The word then gives us light and life. The third, the word confronts us and divides us. The word confronts us and divides us. Verses 10 to 13. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. I was brought up in a Christian home of an earlier generation. It was pretty conservative. In those days, Christians tended to speak quite a lot of worldliness. Never drink, smoke, swear, or chew, and never go out with girls that do. Chew, for those of you who have been protected, is chewing tobacco, not gum. You can see what a high-class background I had. World, it was sometimes pointed out, renders the Greek cosmos. Cosmos is cognate with the Greek verb kosmeo, to adorn, from which we get the English word cosmetics. Worldliness is connected with cosmetics. <laughs> yes. Let me tell you, there are still some congregations around where I could preach that with great gusto and fervor and everybody would say, Amen, deep, deep. <laughs> but contemporary linguistics warns us that you have to understand a word in its context. A word, a, a text without a context becomes a pretext or a proof text. And in this context, in John's usage, cosmos, world, has nothing whatsoever to do with cosmetics, and his analysis of what's wrong with the world is much more profound than whether or not you chew tobacco. In John's usage, in, in four or five instances, the world is simply a big place. Thus, in the last two verses of this book, he ends up by saying, there are a lot of other things that Jesus did, and I suppose that if everything that he, has the word incarnate had done after all all eternity past I suppose he says that the world itself would not be big enough to contain the books that should be written world thus seen as a big library I like it I like it but John uses the word 70 odd times where it has very negative overtones or A setup for negative overtones, as here. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, that's the setup, the world did not recognize him. And then more narrowly, verse 11, he came to that which was his own. He came to his own home, the expression means. It's an idiom. He came to his own people. The the understanding is that he came to his own covenant people, the Jews. He was a first century Jew. And his own people did not receive him. Not, of course, because they're worse, but because they're typical. In some ways, of course, this is saying nothing more than what Old Testament prophets are constantly saying. Thus, God says in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 65, All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations of people who continually provoke me to my face. tell me, what's the hardest thing to get across of Christian teaching when you try to explain the gospel um, on the Cornell campus or on the Ithaca College campus? What's the hardest thing to get across? Would you say it's the deity of Christ? Would, would, Would you say it's the resurrection of Jesus? Would you say it's the Trinity? Well, I haven't spent a lot of time on those two campuses, but I've spent a lot of time on a lot of other campuses, and I'll tell you what I find is the hardest thing to get across. It's not none of those. It's sin. Because somehow, after living through the bloodiest century ever, in which, apart from war, we've managed to bump off a hundred million people through various genocide... 20 million Ukrainians, 6 million Jews, 50 million Chinese, a third of the population of Cambodia, a million and a half Armenians, I don't know how many Hutus and Tutsis, and on and on and on. About 100 million, apart from more. We have concluded at the end of the century and the beginning of this one that there is no such thing as objective evil. Now that's evil. And in fact, in scriptural terms, you see, evil is not a question of breaking a few rules now and then. Evil is bound up with something more foundational. I, I, in the beginning there was God, and we were rightly related to him. But, but now because I have made myself the center of the universe, then everything must revolve around me. It's not as if we go around saying, I'm the center of the universe, I'm the center of the universe. There's, there's nothing quite as overt as that. But if someone holds up your high school graduating class photo, for whom do you look first? <laughs> a- and now you have a real knockdown, drag drag-em-out argument. Maybe with your roommate. Maybe with a part-time employer. Maybe with your mother. Not, not just a little nasty one. A, a real five-year, walk, you know? A really good knockdown, down drag out argument. And you go away, See. You think of all the things you could have said, all the things you should have said, all the things you would have said if you had thought of them fast enough, and you play the whole thing over again, who wins? In my time, I've lost lots of arguments. I've never lost a rerun. (laughs) Because I'm at the center of the universe. And you, you stupid twit, you think that you are, and that is going to give us some trouble. From the Bible's point of view, you see, what is at stake is la chose etikation de Dieu. The de of God, the thingamifying of God, to elevate us so that we are at the center of the universe. We make our own rules, we define our own objects what is the first commandment according to Jesus? The first commandment, you see, is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. That means that the first sin is not to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That means the second sin is not to love your neighbor as yourself. That means that there is no sin that you can commit without committing the first one. None. And very few of the of sins that you can commit without committing the second one as well. That is why, when you read the Old Testament, you see the things that God detests. some ways, a mark itself already of remarkable blindness. Deep-seated corruption. Idolatry. Are there no exceptions? We sometimes sing these sorts of painful, negative thoughts better than we say them in other ways. And and it's in poetry of different times. Here's one from the 17th century. I know it's old. It's by a chap called Samuel Crossman. But although the English is old, listen to the words. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne salvation to bestow, but men made strange and none the longed for Christ would know. But oh, my friends, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Sometimes they strew his way and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day, Hosannas to their King. Then... Crucify is all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. They rise and needs will have, my dear Lord, made away. A murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. Yet cheerful he to suffering goes, that he his foes from thence might free. In life, no house, no home, my Lord, on earth did have. In death, no friendly tomb, but what a stranger gave. What may I say? Heaven was his home, but mine the tomb in which he lay. He came into the world, and the world did not recognize him. Yet, verse 12, yet, some did. Not because they were intrinsically better, but because in due course, some came by... Reasons that we see later in the Gospel, some came to receive him, or to put it differently, to believe in his name, and to them he gave the right to become children of God. But what kind of generation is this? Well, children born not of natural descent, it's not just physical generation, nor of human decision, or a husband's will in a world where most sexual advance was begun by the husband, the born of Here, of course, what John is doing is introducing a theme that we'll come back to tomorrow. It's the theme of the new birth, unpacked in John 3. What does he mean by the new birth? How is it that people really do become children of God? And what does that mean in any case? We'll come to that one. And last, the word incarnates God for us. The word enfleshes God for us. Incarnation. It simply means infleshment or infleshing. Cabne in Latin is the word for meat or flesh. The incarnation of God simply means the infleshing of God. The word infleshes God and reveals it. Now we're referring to verses 14 to 18. Now, both of you are taking English or one of the other literature uh, courses, whether it's Shakespeare or or modern poetry or whatever, you know perfectly well that one of the things that English majors do is try to sort out where an author uses antecedent texts. And the more you know of of other literature, the the, the more you can pull out those antecedent texts and ideas. And the same is true, of course, of, of, of Christians who have been reading their Bibles for a while, isn't it? If I say... For God so loved the world that he gave his... Yeah, some of you will say one and only son because you've been reading the NIV. Some of you will say only begotten son because you were brought on the King James Version. But all of you know that it's from John. Yeah, of course. Now if I say he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now you will say Isaiah 53. Now shall I go on and choose something from Zechariah? Or... Haggai. You know, but, but you see the point. The more that you know of a text, the more you can pick it up. And, and thus when somebody drops in a line, you know that there's a whole context that comes with it. Do you see? Now, these verses here are full of allusions to one Old Testament passage. And you will understand these verses best if you remind yourself what's in that Old Testament passage. That Old Testament passage is Exodus 32, 33, and 34. Now be it good cheer. I'm not going to expound Exodus 32 and 33 and 34, at least not tonight. But let me remind you what's there. In Exodus 32, you find the episode of the golden calf. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments and the law, and down below, the people of God, in new covenant with him, freshly relieved from slavery, if you please, have decided that Moses has been away too long and... uh, They'd rather be like the pagans all around them, and so so even Moses' brother Aaron is complicit in all of this. And they cast a little calf, and and, and these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. And 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 suddenly now they have reverted to a, a more pagan style form of worship with great revelry and even uh, orgy. Moses comes down and sees this, and he is not pleased. The tablets of stone are broken. God threatens to wipe out the people. Moses intercedes. There's judgment on the community. The plan had been for God to have the tabernacle, the new tabernacle, where he was going to appear. uh, It builds right in the middle of the camp. With three tribes in the north, three in the south, three in the east, three in the west. But God says, if I show up anywhere near this lot, you know, my wrath could burst out and consume them. There's no way that this can be built in the middle of the camp. That's chapter 32. Chapter 33, you find Moses praying and interceding. Before there was this great uh, tabernacle, there was a small tent that was pitched outside the camp, we're told, in chapter 33. Moses, verse 7, used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And there he used to go and and seek God's face and pray. Now we overhear one of his prayers, 33.12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But Because, you see, Aaron was the one that had been sent with him, but now Aaron was so compromised that Moses just felt utterly alone. will go with me now. You said, I know you by name. You have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. I didn't volunteer for this job. They're your people. You know, what, what do we do now? The Lord replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? Well, what does it mean to say that you are pleased with us if you have sent yourself from us, if you hide yourself from us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And so as a result, when the tabernacle is built, a few chapters later, it is built in the center of the camp. And there's never any more mention made of God withdrawing himself from his people despite their sin. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. It's as if Moses is saying, The only thing that will stabilize me for this unbearably enormous task I have is such a vision of who you are in all of your greatness that it stays with me and grounds me and and, and reassures me that what I'm doing is true and right and of transcendent importance. Maybe I've just had power displays up until now. Maybe part of this is psychological How can I be grounded with the kind of steadfastness of faith that will endure in these constant contests I have with my own people? Now show me your glory. And God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, the Eternal One, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then you know what happens. He's hidden in a cleft in the rock, and Moses is is, is hidden. And and then the Lord goes by and intones certain words. And then after he's gone by, Moses is allowed to peek out and glimpse something of the trailing edge of the afterglow of the glory of God. What are the words that God intones as he goes by? Chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and a whole lot more. Abounding in love and faithfulness. The Hebrew words are chesed vamed, love and faithfulness. The same words are sometimes rendered grace. It's God's covenantal favor, even even in the midst of sin, it's his love, his, his grace. And Ahmed, in Hebrew, is, is more than truth. It's his utter, rock, salt, reliability, his faithfulness. And then faithfulness in speech is truth. Thus, for example, um, when the Queen of Sheba, uh, centuries later, visits uh, Solomon, she says, Everything that was told me about you was Ahmed. That it was it was a faithful report. It, it, it was the truth. Abounding in love and faithfulness. You could equally say abounding in grace and truth. Now go back to John 1. The Word became flesh. That is, it became a human being. Not it sort of hid in it, or faked it, but actually became it. It became what it was not. He always was with God, and he was God. But now he became something that he was not. He became flesh. That's why Christians speak of the God-man. And he made his dwelling among us. Oh, the the expression in the original is stronger yet. He tabernacled among us. That's not the way you say he made his dwelling in in, in the ancient world. He he tabernacled amongst us using precisely the same form as was used in the Greek Old Testament for, for the tabernacle of God. The place where God met with his people in covenantal display. At the tabernacle, and then later with the temple. And that, of course, introduces the temple theme that is picked up in John 2, which we'll look at first thing tomorrow morning. Again, John is preparing the way for later themes in his gospel, you see? So the Word became human, and made his dwelling a tabernacle among us, and we have seen his glory. Well, glory is a great theme in the Old Testament, but, but Moses asked too for the glory of God. And what did God say? I will make all my goodness to pass in front of you. And now you start thinking, how does this glory theme play out in John's gospel? Well, the first miracle shows up in chapter 2. And at the end of it, chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that the disciples in this miracle saw Jesus' glory. That theme is repeated until you get to chapter 12. And then you discover that Jesus is most glorified. By being hung on a cross. He returns to the glory he had with the Father by being glorified on a cross. Lift it up. That's a John term. Lift it up. And all along there's this kind of pun on it. He's lifted up on a cross in odium and shame that he might be lifted up to return to the Father with whom he had glory before the world began. He is glorified before human beings in odium and shame, that, I, he, that He might return to the glory that He had with the Father. Lifted up was He to die. We say, "Show me Your glory." I will cause all my goodness to pass by. Where will you see this one most glorified? On a cross. On his way to glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, by the time you get down to 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 the last verse, you are reminded, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. That's referring directly to Exodus 33. But Moses was not allowed to see God. He was permitted to see the trailing edge of the afterglow of the glory of God and hear God in tone. The Lord, the Lord, full of grace and of truth, full of chesedvanez, full of love and faithfulness. But now we are introduced to the one who is said to be full of grace and truth. In fact, we're told, verse 16, if I were rendering this literally, from From his fullness, we have all received a grace instead of a grace. It's not grace upon grace, as if they're piled up like Christmas presents under a tree. Piles and piles, gift upon gift, grace upon grace. That's not the idea. It's, we have all received a grace instead of a grace. A grace replacing a grace. For, verse 17, there's the explanation, that for is important. For the law was given through Moses. There's the reference back to Moses. And the giving of the law at this very time in Israel's history. The law was given through Moses. That was a great, gracious gift. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, excellence. Grace and truth personified. Grace and truth in a person, in the God's man. And the Mosaic law covenant has gone. It was pointing to something else. And now, the very epitome of what the tabernacle was for, the very epitome of God displaying himself in glory, the very epitome of grace and truth has come about in the new covenant. of The one who is called full of grace and truth. I first began to think seriously about these verses when I was an undergraduate at McGill. In the mid-60s. And I lived that particular year in a residence called Molson Hall. You can guess who put up the money for it. And on my wing, there was a Pakistani who was twice my age. He was old enough to be my father. Um, A Muslim, lovely man, who was at McGill to do a Ph.D. in Islamic studies. McGill has a very fine Islamic institute. And he was trying to convert me to Islam. And I always trying to tell him about Jesus. It seemed fair to me, except I felt often outclassed because he was doing a Ph.D. in in Islam, and I was doing chemistry and mathematics. And I I, I was frequently hopelessly outgunned in theological debate. I remember walking down uh, University Avenue to. Uh, Pine Avenue to pick up the bus because he decided one evening that he'd come to church with me. He only did it once or twice, but he wanted to see what a Christian church was like. And as we were walking down, he says, Don, he was such a lovely fellow. We got along famously in all kinds of times. He had this flashing smile. The teeth as white as white and a wonderful sense of humor. He says, Don, he said, you, you study mathematics, don't you? Yes. If you have one cup and you add another cup, how many cups do you have? Well, I was studying mathematics. I said, two? So you have two cups and you add another cup. How many cups do you have? I said three. You have three cups. You take away one cup. How many cups do you have? Two. Well, you say Jesus is God? Yes. You say the Holy Spirit is God? Yes. You say the Father is God? Yes. You have one God plus one God plus one God. How many gods do you have? <sighs> Give me a postmodernist You Just have to talk about sin. I said, look, if we're going to use mathematics, let me at least least choose the branch of mathematics. I will choose infinities. Infinity plus infinity plus infinity equals how much? Infinity. Three times infinity minus infinity equals? And so we laughed. And this was the level of our theological conversation. It was not very profound. Then at Christmas, he didn't have anywhere to go, so I brought him home with me to uh, to, 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 to Hull, which is where my parents lived, just across the, the river from uh, Ottawa, the nation's capital. And it so happened that my father was uh, was was very ill that Christmas and spent the whole time in the hospital, and dear old Muhammad Yusuf Gurai was largely left on his own. By the end, it became clear that my father was not so ill. He was going to make it all right. And uh, So I said, Mom, do you mind if I take the car? We only had one car in those days. Uh, let me have the car, and I, I should show Gurai around a little bit. You know, Ottawa's a great town. So I took on some of the tourist things, and eventually we ended up at the Parliament's buildings, a pseudo-Gothic structure right on the bank of the Ottawa River. Um, really well-designed, very lovely, and in those days the tours were numerous, the security was less, and it was a lot of fun. So we got into this group of 30, and this guard started taking us around and showed us, you know, all the photographs of the Canada's prime ministers beginning with uh, Sir John A. Macdonald and all the mug shots all the way down to the current one, which in those days was John Dievenbaker. And um, and then we went up to the Senate chamber and to the rotunda at the back where the library is and, and the House of Commons and explanations and history and so on. Quite an interesting lecture for an hour and a half. And eventually we came back to the foyer, the, the, the foyer, the, the, the rotunda at the front. And there were large columns with fluted arches in the top, and a little figure in each one. And each one was carefully explained. This is Aristotle. For government must be based on knowledge. This is Plato. For government must be based on wisdom. This is Moses. For government must be based on law. Went all the way around. End of the tour. Any questions? Guraya chirped up. Where is Jesus Christ? The guard didn't know what to say. So he said what guards do under those circumstances. <clears throat> I beg your pardon? So, Guraya than did what foreigners do under such circumstances. He assumed that he wasn't understood because of his thick accent, so he said it more slowly and more loudly. Where is Jesus Christ? So now you had three groups in the rotunda of the Canadian Parliament hearing a Pakistani Muslim ask where Jesus is. As for me, I was looking for a crack in the ground to fall into. I didn't know where this was coming from either i had given him a Bible only about six weeks before because um, it I never dawned on me that he'd never had a Christian Bible. I didn't have a Quran. He didn't have a Bible, it seemed fair. And we sort of did a swap. And, and he asked where to start reading. And, and I, I, I didn't know. I, I said, well, let's start reading John's Gospel. And, and you see, in, 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 in the West, we read as fast as possible, as many pages as possible, 300 pages by the next assignment. And you to go fast, see. Whereas in the East there's much more sort of meditative readings sit they and think about it, turn it over in your head. He'd been reading John's Gospel. I still don't know where this question was coming from. The, the, the guard finally said, why should Jesus be here? So I read in the Christian Bible that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus Christ? I'm a legit runner. <laughs> you see, you have to understand that a devout, pious man like Guraya understood a sovereign God. He understood sin. He understood justice. He understood truth. The Quran insists again and again and again that God is the all-compassionate. Never does it say God is love.
1: And already Gorae
0: was snared. He was snared by this God-man Jesus, full of grace and Before there was a universe, before a star or planet, when time had still not yet begun, I scarcely understand it. The eternal word was with his God, God's very self-expression. The eternal word was God himself, and God to planned redemption. The word became our flesh and blood, the stuff of his creation. The word was God, the word was flesh, astounding incarnation. But when he came to visit us, we did not recognize him. Although we owed him everything, we haughtily despised him. In days gone by, God showed himself in grace and truth to Moses. But in the word of God made flesh, their climax he discloses. For grace and truth in fullness came and showed the Father's glory when Jesus donned our flesh and died. This is the gospel story all who delighted in his name, all those who did receive him, all who by grace are born of God, all who in truth believed him. To them he gave a stunning right, becoming God's dear children. Here will I stay in grateful trust. Here will I fix my vision. Before there was a universe, before a star or planet, when time is still not yet begun, I scarcely understand it. The eternal word was with his God, God's very self-expression. The eternal word was God himself, his God, had planned redemption. Let us pray. Lord God, we confess that sometimes we look for a domesticated Jesus, and we are ashamed. Help us to return to the pages of Holy Scripture and think them through afresh and see Him as He truly is and to come before Him with confession and adoration for Jesus' sake. Amen. After years of teaching, I've discovered that when there are no questions, it is the result of one of two things. Number one, the speaker has been so delightfully comprehensive that there's nothing left to ask. (laughs) Or he's been so remarkably obscure one scarcely knows where to begin. (laughs) Yes. Do you know if your Pakistani friend became Christian? <laughs> That's a long story, and I and I and one always treats such questions with some reserve. Um, by the end of that year, you, you must understand, I was, I was 19 or 20, and he was in his mid-40s, and he was an esteemed teacher in Pakistan. By the end of that year, he'd read a lot more and talked to others, and he decided that he could no longer commit himself to Islam and therefore felt he had to withdraw from the program. And uh, just for for integrity's sake. But he had his wife and two kids back in Pakistan, so he went home. The last letter I had from him was that he was still considering Jesus. And um, over the years, um, uh, I sent letters and books and so on. I never got any reply. Um, There are long stories within stories on that one. And I think I know what happened, but I'm not sure. It's one of those questions. I have a mental checklist of questions to ask of God when I get to glory. That's one of them. The the, the question was Am I the author of the closing poem? Uh, Yes. What can I say? For my
1: sins. (laughs) (laughs) There have been some of us
0: that have been been working for the last few years uh, trying to create some new hymns, uh, and that's one of them. That's been set to music but not yet published. Some of them have been published and are circulating as part of the new hymnody that's developed. And uh, that one has been set to music, but it has not yet been recorded and published. But it's it's in the pipeline.
1: Having gone through that experience before and recommended John's Gospel, if you had the same experience today, what would you recommend to that
0: mullah to read? Um, that's a very good question. Um. I think it would depend a bit on the nature of the relationship. You see, in that particular case, he and I had become friends and, uh, on, the same, on the same wing, and he was trying to influence me and offering me a Quran as I was offering him a Bible. So it was a kind of reciprocal friendship sort of thing where you, you could get into stuff like that. And in some ways, I was distinctly not a threat to him because I was an undergraduate doing chemistry and mathematics, do you, do you see. Whereas in the nature of the case, I would be viewed differently today. And and so you you might have to to, to do more groundwork in other things. When I have talked to to, to Muslims in more recent years, um, then you sometimes have to distinguish between um, a a Muslim on the street with a kind of lay knowledge of Islam and of Christianity just as a, a lay Christian on the street has a lay knowledge of Christianity and Islam. You see, I mean, a lot of, we'll come to this tomorrow, in fact, a lot of street Muslims think that the Christian doctrine of the Trinity says that God copulated with Mary to produce Jesus, and that's the Holy Trinity. But no, educated mullah thinks that, but, but some street Muslims do. So where you begin, you see, at, at the one level, and where you begin at, at, at the other level is, is really radically different. Um, to, to remove some of the barriers, I've sometimes tried to deal with passages, in fact, one of them that we're going to deal with tomorrow, on what it means to confess Jesus as the Son of God. Because that is one of the big, big, big offenses in Christianity, to talk about Jesus as the Son of God. So I, I sometimes begin with a Bible study on John 5, uh, um, 16 to 30, which we're going to look at tomorrow, in fact. Um, the, the, the Quran confesses that Jesus is the Word of God. The Quran does, does use that expression on it, and so John one one to eighteen is in fact not an entirely bad place to begin. In any case, um, popular Islam has much more place for angels and, and that sort of thing. Another very good place to begin with with with, uh, with with Muslims is Matthew one and two and Hebrews one, because they're full of angels. And in fact, the whole argument of Hebrews one is that Jesus is better than the angels. And and so, so there are different ways in depending on whom you're dealing with. I I don't have a formulaic answer. It, it's it's partly coming to terms with with what the Bible says and with what the Quran says and, and, and entering into honest discussion. I was wondering if you could comment on the shift from um, third person to first person in that. Uh, I guess it's just in verse 14. And also, who's included in the plural first person, of the we? The word became uh, flesh and made his dwelling among us. I can almost guess that one. But the other one, we have seen his glory and the glory of the only of the, God. Yeah. God. yeah. And true. There are quite a lot of small details I did not mention there. But later on, um, again and again and again, John, in the, the, the writer of John's gospel purports to be a Jew, One of the disciples of Jesus, one of the twelve, and by a process of elimination and by the early witness of the church, most Christians, except for the most skeptical in the last couple hundred years, have said it was John's gospel. And then the first letter of John begins with another we. And again, it's a we that is talking about actual first-hand experience, that which was from the beginning, but which we have heard and seen with our own eyes and touched and handled. You, you, you see, and what it sounds to me like in both passages is the we of first century, at least apostolic, but at least first century eyewitness. Um, I think that's the natural way to read it. And, um, and, uh, and in my view, there's plenty of evidence throughout the book that, that supports that kind of approach.
1: When I was a student, it probably was still true that John 3.16 would have been one of the most quoted verses. I've heard uh, youth workers and pastors say that even among young people who go to youth group and college groups and so on, the most quoted New Testament verse today is, Judge not that ye be not judged. How do you deal, or do you have suggestions with how we ought to deal with the exclusive claims of the gospel in an age of of such infinite tolerance and and uh, such a a, almost a fear or hesitation about spelling out in any detail the the particular claims of the gospel um
0: that is a huge subject Uh, to answer it in 25 words or less is really difficult um, but it is one that has interested me a great deal. Uh, in fact, I've written two books on it, if it's if they're of any help. One is called The Gagging of God, and the other was an edited one from a conference we had at Trinity called Telling the Truth, Evangelizing Postmoderns. There are really two components uh, in the analysis. One is the biblical illiteracy, which, as you say, is now massive. One of my students at Trinity recently was downtown Chicago with his fiancée, and she was wearing a gold chain around her neck with um, with a wooden cross suspended, and um, and a teenager stopped them in the street and said, "What are you wearing a plus sign around your neck for?" Um, I still do university missions, I try to do a couple of year, And when I'm dealing with, with you know honest unbelievers in the university campus, nowadays, I assume that they don't know that there are two testaments. They've certainly never heard of David or Isaiah. If they've heard of Moses, he's confused with Charlton Heston, or the new cartoon character. Um, the, 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 and the very limited religious vocabulary, God, spirit, truth, faith, a few other words, in every case means something different from what I mean. Uh, I have to explain, I always circulate texts like, like, like today, but if this had been a university mission as opposed to uh, you know something for... Campus Crusade, and Institute for Biblical Studies, and NAVS, and, and IVCF, and, and, and so on. Then, on university campuses today, I begin by explaining the big numbers and the little numbers. So, so, so the, the level of biblical literacy is phenomenal. So, that's the first part. And then the second is, underlying that, a postmodern epistemology, that even if it's not very well defined, it now is relativizing all objective truth claims. And with that has come a new definition of tolerance. Um, the old definition of tolerance presupposed that um, I might disagree with your ideas, but I was judged tolerant if I insisted that you had the right to articulate them. In other words, I had to disagree with you in the first place in order to insist you had the right to speak, and that made me tolerant. But in the postmodern definition of tolerance, um, a tolerant person is one who refuses to say anybody else is wrong. I don't, I don't even think that's logical. How, how can you, how can you speak of tolerating someone if you don't think they're wrong in the first place? Uh, How do you say, oh, I agree with you, I agree with you, I agree with you, I tolerate you? How how do you do that? Do you you, you
1: see? You have to say, oh, I
0: disagree with you, but I tolerate you. Then then you're speaking meaningfully of toleration. And, but in the, in the, in, in the old way, toleration was disagreeing with the ideas, but having such respect for the person, and in the Christian way, because he or she is made in the image of God, and has as much eternal destiny as you have, and all the rest, that, that, that you, you, you defend to the death their right to speak, even if you disagree with their ideas. But in the new definition of tolerance, you can't say that anybody is wrong, and you are not tolerating them if you ever say anybody is wrong. The one wrong thing to say is that somebody else is wrong. The one heresy left is the view that there is such a thing as heresy. And, and then the one thing that is not tolerated is the person who says... That, um, that, that that anybody else is wrong. That is not tolerated. So it turns out that the new tolerance is extremely intolerant. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we're facing all the time in a in university. I, I, I know that. I, 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 it's where I live. And in my view, the only way of finally addressing these things is looking them straight in the eye and beginning to answer them on the negative side. That is, you have to begin to answer some of the problems of postmodernism, and I think it can be done. But then you also have to start rebuilding the foundations by outlining the Bible storyline. In other words, I don't think that you can see, see people genuinely, knowingly, understandingly in faith, truly converting to Christ, who, who know so little of the Bible storyline, the worldview, the frame of reference, that, that, that there's sort of um, just making an existential leap in, in, into, into a kind of Jesus thing. That, that, that's not genuine conversion. The biblical warmth for all of this, it seems to me, is the difference between what Paul does in Acts 13 and what he does in Acts 17. In Acts 13, you find him evangelizing Jews and proselytes, in a synagogue where people already share his Old Testament background. There he spends all of his evangelistic time trying to explain that Jesus really is the promised Messiah and that the Old Testament really does say you have to die and all of that. When he's dealing with biblically illiterate, though highly intellectual, pagans, in Acts 17, he begins with one God, creation, providence, the aseity of God, that is he doesn't need us, unlike a pagan religion where gods and human beings are in a kind of tit-for-tat relationship, Uh, They got needs, we got needs. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. I offer you the right incense; they give me the right baby. You know that kind of thing. Um, Or my wife, as the case may be. Um, And 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 so so instead, you know, the God of the Bible is 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 uh, is bigger than that. He saw, and he goes through these, and then he introduces idolatry. He's got to create a whole worldview before he introduces Jesus. And in my view, contemporary evangelism in biblical, amongst biblical literates really is what is now called worldview evangelism. Now that's a bit outside the domain of, of this year's structures. Maybe we'll come back sometime and talk about worldview evangelism, but it's, it's, it's outside of my brief in some ways for, 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 for this particular series, except that some of the things that I'm dealing with with respect to Christ actually are putting in worldview structures. It's why I began with creation and fall and who Jesus is. And so those are all big, worldview staples uh, that, that have to be put in place to make sense of the gospel itself. To quote Billy Graham, May the Lord bless you all real good.